so thanks everybody for for being here. I hope uh, I hope uh, spring has sprung wherever it is that that you are. Um, I will offer my usual apology um, in advance for, in this case, last week's overly long and exceedingly depressing um, <clears throat> BDS monitor. And um, I don't want to go over all of those all of those points again, but uh, for better and for worse, there are some some new things which which amplify some of the things that were discussed last week. So um, let's let's leap right into it, and I'll start, as Asaf indicated, with this new um, editorial in the Harvard Crimson, which came out on April. 29th and it represents a a break for this particular platform other institutions other uh, student newspapers have endorsed bds in the past but uh, obviously harvard uh, has a particular meaning and and i want to get to that in in a second one of the striking things about this piece is uh, that it's first and foremost an affront to the English language and to and to logic. And I encourage everybody to go at least try to read this. And uh, I'll, I'll read the first paragraph uh, with apologies again. When oppression strikes anywhere in the world, resistance movements reverberate globally. The desire for rightful justice spreads like wildfire, moving us to act, to speak, to write, and right our past wrongs. Now, um, you know, again, I, I don't want anybody becoming nauseous so early in, in our conversation today. This is very much captures the, the, the level and tone. It's horribly written, it's painfully verbose, it's horribly reasoned. Um, and it comes out, it, it, it is a, it's a fulsome apology for not having endorsed BDS in the past. It uh, takes to task um, privilege. It endorses Palestinian liberation without, without defining that term or, or concept. And it follows, I think, in the in what is a, a well-established but growing pattern of student media, uh, campus media, being captured entirely by, by BDS passion. So as, as I indicated in last week's monitor, uh, there was an incident in April where the Chicago Maroon ran uh, an anti-BDS op-ed piece and then essentially um, defenestrated it by unpublishing it and then publishing a long, again, painfully long, painfully verbose, horribly written uh, kind of disclaimer, apologizing point by point by point for this, for this anti-BDS op-ed and then appending it at the bottom, so it 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 unpublished and then it it kind of republished it in a in a manner. 
the University of British Columbia newspaper uh, just took the step of unpublishing a piece completely that had been run by uh, a student journalist, so-called, which was really quite neutral, uh, describing the events uh, in a B BDS resolution vote campaign at, uh, at that institution because the student journalist in high school had written a piece where, wherein he had um, opined that BDS was, uh, anti-Zionism was anti-Semitic. So, uh, and there's also a case at uh, the University of Michigan back in April where there were protests from uh, the local Students for Justice in Palestine chapter that <clears throat> the student government, uh, which had posted all of these solidarity with Palestine kinds of declarations last year during the Gaza um, conflict, had archived them. That is to say, it, they had just put them in a in a file. They hadn't been and deleted from the website. They just weren't front and center at the top of the website. The point being is that uh, the ideology among the BDS movement is that, that this issue has to dominate all student media all the time. It has to be on the front page of the Instagram page. There has to, there has to be uh, editorials featured front and center on the on the student newspaper homepage, and that increasingly, because student media are dominated by um, progressive students who see, uh, who for ideological and uh, practical purposes, see their futures as, uh, in alignment with this BDS ideology. Uh, that they have to make sure that everyone understands that the platform itself is endorsing BDS. Now, student media in general is um, ridiculous and rather um, sad and pathetic in its in its own ways. It's <clears throat> verbose. It's subliterate. Uh, it, it, it represents some of the worst writing that's out there. And that to me was one of the most shocking things about, about all this. But it also, uh, and this is where it becomes actually important. It, it represents the passions of, the, uh, of a self-selected group who will be the forthcoming ruling class. These are the kids who go on to law school, to journalism school, to the uh, editorial pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so on. So it is a window into the, the future ruling classes, um, passions and animosities, which are reliably against Israel, which are reliably now against free speech, they are reliably against due process in legal proceedings, and um, it is, and, and they are against the idea of having two sides. Issues don't have two sides; they only have one side, the right side, the right side of history. 
because history, the arc of history bends in some direction or another. These kinds of platitudes, aphorisms that had been bandied around 10 and 20 years ago now have um, conditioned quite literally the, the mentality, the thinking of uh, an entire significant portion of an entire generation of students, particularly uh, in elite institutions, particularly those, again, who are self-selected towards activism uh, in one way or another. And they act with, they act with impunity. They act with, um, as though they are above, very much above the law. And uh, so th that's the significance, I think, that it's a, it's a window into elite opinion and, and forthcoming elite opinion. And it, it's another indication that, that BDS and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism um, are, I think, uh, simultaneously intellectual issues, but they're also class issues. And as class issues, because of the tone of this op-ed, the tone of many of these kinds of um, statements are they drip with entitlement that we individuals in a position of, of privilege must, um, and I, I, I hesitate to, to use this phrase, it, you know, uh, adopt a kind of white man's burden to use a, an, a quite old fashioned formulation. Um, so there's entitlement, there's noblesse oblige involved. Um, and condescension, and <clears throat> we see this. We see this all over uh, modern media today and modern institutions today. And it's a it's a harbinger of what is of what is to come, which makes it very very unfortunate. And um, in practical terms, uh, it doesn't in necessarily advance the project of economically or politically isolating in Israel um, or its supporters. In ideological and social terms, it, these are more steps along the way towards um, <clears throat> towards that towards that goal. And so. So that brings me to um, to the other thing. I, uh, one of the other points I want to talk about, and that is the response. Well, the response to the Harvard um, editorial was predictably uh, harsh from Jewish organizations, Jewish individuals, um, and there's always a surprising to me uh, dimension to this. Uh, the tone is is the tone of surprise is what surprises me is if is if any um, observer any casual observer shouldn't be aware of these kinds of trends or tendencies um, for quite some time. But there's a, a a very typical sense of shock and alienation that Jews, in particular, who've gone through uh, elite institutions like Harvard, but not simply elite institutions, sense of 
a sense of betrayal, what's happened to the, my alma mater. Um, <clears throat> but the official response from official organizations, to the extent that American Judaism has official organizations, has been somewhat um, muted, uh, which makes the, the recent statement by um, the, head of the, the head of the ADL, um, Stephen Greenblatt, all the more, all the more interesting. And in a talk the other day, he actually came out and said that students for justice in Palestine, Jewish Voice for Peace, CARE, and the Democratic Socialists of America are left-wing extremists. Parallel or, or mirror images in some ways of right-wing extremists right-wing extremism defined in different ways has very much been the ADL focus, um, particularly in recent, in recent years. So what's interesting, I think in, in um, Jonathan Greenblatt, not Stephen Greenblatt, sorry, um, too, many, too many Greenblatts um, floating around in my head. Um, what's interesting to this is that there is, to the extent that we can think of the ADL, formerly known as the Anti-Defamation League, but which shortened its, its title in order to address a broader spectrum of, of bad things. I think this is a kind of canary in the coal mine moment that reliably left-wing organi left organizations like the ADL um, have now awakened to the fact that SJPs, JVPs, uh, CARE, and the DSA are part of a larger phenomenon on the, on the far left, the progressive left, which is uniformly anti-Israel, which is uniformly hostile to, to Jews who do not um, share their opinions. And whether this is too little, too late is a, is a question I, that will be played out in the, in the coming weeks and months and hopefully years. It's a sort of end of a, what I think, to my mind, it's the end of a free pass that um, organized American Jewish organizations organized organizations, sorry, um, <clears throat> have had towards a blind spot, have had towards the, the far left generally and the far left and its attitudes towards, towards Israel. One of the interesting things though, is that um, this, this attitude um, of neglect or position of neglect was, has not been uh, reflected has not been reciprocated by the BDS movement because recall that the BDS movement has been uniformly hostile to the ADL and even its most mild kinds of complaints or pronouncements regarding um, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, <coughs> excuse me. And 
the so for its part, Jewish Voice for Peace and Students for Justice in Palestine and CARE um, have been calling the ADL anti-Black, anti-Muslim. They've been excoriating um, the organization for its police exchange um, program and, um, uh, and for all sorts of uh, other kinds of activities, which on the far left are regarded as um, hostile towards minorities, hostile towards um, Muslims in particular, but also anything that's protective of Israel and the Jewish community. The ADL has been a convenient, uh, a convenient foil, a convenient enemy, and now they've they've stepped up, and um, to to which we can say welcome to the fight. ADL is a very um, well organized and well funded um, operation, and we can only hope that using their their um, lenses and using their <clears throat> their megaphones that the absolutely all-pervasive anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism of SJPs, of JVP, and, its, and their supporting organizations and the interlocking organizations um, in particular care, and their political uh, wings, such as uh, Democratic Socialists of America, at the national level and at various state levels, that these will this will have some kind of traction, um, first and foremost with Jews, but all, more broadly within American society as a whole. Um, which which also brings me to, uh, which then brings me to the the third point that I want to discuss very very briefly, and that uh, that uh, are is the question of of politics. Today's primary day in Ohio and in Indiana, and <clears throat> where uh, BDS and anti-pro and anti-Israel politics are are significant issues. I uh, don't follow local races all that all that closely, at least not outside of my own state of New York. So I don't want to comment too much about uh, who who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Um, I, I just want to note a couple of things, though. One is that other parts of the organized American Jewish community have become extremely involved in local Democratic races, particularly for, the, uh, for House seats, and, but also at, at, at other levels. So the Democratic Majority for Israel group has contributed, um, which only came about a few years ago, um, two, three, four years ago, someone can correct me, um, has contributed enormous amounts of money, hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of dollars, to local races. And this is specifically explicitly pushback against progressive candidates who are potential members of the squad, the, the BDS caucus in the House of Representatives, as I sometimes <clears throat> call it. APAC as well has become involved, reversing its, its historic, uh, historical position 
um, it is now it now operates as a as a pack and gives money, as does um, as does J Street on the opposite side. So you have um, you have a multi a multi dimensional uh, situation of contributions coming each way and vetting. Uh, vetting various candidates um, and and observing them and uh, and as well as explicitly vetting them at a much higher level than has been done in in previous races, um, previous cycle uh, election cycles. And there's also, as if things weren't complicated enough, the whole phenomenon of um, former President Trump endorsing various candidates in in various races. So from here until November, I think we should expect um, a very complicated, very fast moving and increasingly unpleasant series of um, candidacies um, encompassing encompassing much of the uh, much of the country. Um, it, it'll happen in New York. It's happening today in Indiana and Ohio. I think New York, we have our primaries in a couple of weeks. Um, I'll get something in the mail to remind me. <clears throat> and this will all lead up to November when, when we'll see. Um, the question of the bottom line, though, is that uh, elements within the Democratic Party um, and are, are pushing back against the squad and sp specifically on the issue of Israel, but also more broadly on its endorsement of a variety of positions that are um, out of sync with, uh, with the democratic mainstream or the mainstream as the Democratic Party hopes it is. Um, so what else do I, what else do I have? Um, let me conclude what should I conclude with? Um, I guess I talked about um, various BDS resolutions and referendums on campus in the monitor last week, so I don't want to go too much into that. Um, the usual sorts of <coughs> excuse me shenanigans, and you know, at Princeton, the the pro-Israel students were advised by the student government that uh, that abstentions. Um, count towards uh, the total vote number being tabulated, and then this was reversed, and so they got screwed. And uh, at McGill University, the there was a BDS referendum, and the university, which was proved, and then the university said, "No way, uh, we're not doing that." So it's all for naught, except in in terms of, once again, as information warfare. Student Union at Melbourne University approved a, a resolution the other day. Um, Liverpool University voted one down. So it, there's the usual backdrop of resolutions for and against, referendums for and against. And maybe the place to conclude is with um, the, the question of harassment, but against the uh, all of these resolutions back and forth and back and forth 
go on and thank goodness they'll stop when this or they'll mostly stop when the semester ends zoom has made student government possibly the lowest form of government possible all year round so we can thank the pandemic for that <clears throat> but physical harassment of of jewish students um, continues and i'll i'll just point to the incident at rutgers where the uh, on I think it was Yom Hazikaron or Yom HaShoah last week. Um, the Jewish fraternity, A.E. Pi, was, um, had eggs thrown at it, and Jewish students outside were uh, verbally harassed and threatened by a couple of carloads of students waving Palestinian flags. Uh, so these kinds of things are, once again, the backdrop, the physical manifestations of anti-Zionism, um, the anodyne term for, for anti-Semitism focused on, on Israel. They're increasing. And uh, the only good thing is that the semester will be over. So the, those incidents, I think, will probably drop off. And then we'll see what happens in the, uh, in the fall semester. So let me stop there and um take some take some questions great uh thank you as always alex for the uh i'll be depressing uh you know uh update as where we are and obviously things are uh, are not getting better and there's uh, clearly a, a lot of issues that need to be tackled uh let me put out a first question before we go to the audience uh, one aspect that we did not talk about you mentioned it i guess you know as a segue obviously last you know uh marking uh the commemoration of the um, Holocaust. There was a, a lot of discussion for the first time about um, Arabs and Muslims going to the March of the Living. Uh, but notwithstanding any of that, uh, obviously, you know, we're seeing the impact of Ukraine and the rise of anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, and you know, the latest uh, you know comments that have come out of Russia. Uh, do you want to maybe comment a bit, a little bit about that? How that is impacting? Uh, the BDS scene, and really, you know, how anti-Semitism is so um, culturally uh, entangled, you know, apropos, you know, going back to your point about uh, the kind of vision or lens into the, Amer into the American, and I would say, I mean, <clears throat> go further into the Western elite of, of what people are thinking these days, and how the normalization of all of this is not really making a dent despite world affairs? Well, the Ukraine situation is is very interesting. And I, I think I wrote about that, possibly not this, not in April, but certainly in, in March. It, it went through, <clears throat> you know, every issue that, that you can imagine is um, manipulated, I think the word is weaponized by the BDS movement one way or the other. So at the beginning uh, of the of the Ukraine crisis, the Ukraine war, <clears throat> the, the BDS movement jumped on it. And there were a variety of, of arguments. Uh, Ukraine is just like uh, is just like Palestine and uh, the Russians are just like the Israelis invading. And that's something that doesn't hold up to much logical scrutiny. 
And then there was the argument that Israel should be doing more to help Ukraine. And that um, didn't hold up to much scrutiny, but it got a lot of, a lot of traction. And the Palestinian, for its part, the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is a sort of semi-client of the, of the Russians, um, had very little to say about it. As relations have deteriorated uh, between Russia and, and Israel, and the statement today by the foreign ministry, um, I think, I, which I haven't read yet, um, kind of brings it all to a, a new low about Israel being aligned with, with, uh, with Ukraine and the Ukrainians are Nazis. And that's a, that's a, you know, the idea that the Ukrainians are, are Nazis is a fundamental part of the, the Z war mentality. <clears throat> um, the Z symbol is shorthand for a, a kind of ideological package that sees um, deviance from, you know, the, the sort of <clears throat> post-communist Russian Orthodox uh, way of restoring the Russian lands. Obviously, there to to defy this is is Nazis, Nazism, and as I understand it, and again I haven't read the whole statement today, uh, is that basically the Russian Foreign Ministry has, you know, declared that you know Israel is Israel is now a neo-Nazi state because it's aligned with aligned with um, with Ukraine, even though the involve the specific involvement has been very gradual, gradual, graduated, sending a field hospital, sending defensive uh, weapons, voting uh, for sanctions, voting against uh, Russia in, in the UN, things like that. So we'll see what kind of practical, unfortunately, we'll see what kind of practical um, implications this has on the Lebanese and Syrian borders for, for Israel. Uh, where they face the Russians basically face to face. What it means for the BDS movement, though, is, <coughs> excuse me, I think that it'll be a new line of it'll be a new line of argument that, but it, but it'll be a contradictory one. That uh, you know, the Israelis aren't aren't doing enough, but they're aligned with Ukraine, and there are Nazis in the Ukraine, the Azov brigade or whatever and there's lots of anti-semitism so uh, the the idea that that israel is fundamentally anti-semitic um has been a, a sub a sub thread or a sub sub thread of certain kinds of um anti-zionist and bds rhetoric for for a long time that israel works in opposition to the real interest of Jews, uh, <clears throat> that uh, you know, it it makes deals with bad states like Russia, and I guess like now like Ukraine. So in the in the pretzel logic world of the BDS movement, I think we can expect, particularly the Jewish the Jewish BDS movement the Peter Beinarts, the Jewish currents kind of um, line of reasoning 
so to speak, that uh, Israel's Israel's working with with Nazis, and it's and and this will be this will emerge more in the rhetoric, I think, going forward. Great. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, okay, there are a bunch of questions in the audience, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try I'm gonna try to get to them and uh, and tackle some of those questions if that's okay with you. Sure, please. All right, great. So uh, let's start with uh, Richard uh, Cronfield's question. Uh, who's asking about uh, could we bring lawsuits against universities and administrators uh, for failing a to, pro to uh, protect. Jewish students. I know you and I have obviously written a great deal about that. Maybe you want to talk a little about some of the latest lawsuits that are going around and uh, the toolboxes that we have as far as the use of law uh, when it comes to the environment on campuses. Well, I'm I'm not a lawyer, um, but as we as we know, that never stops anyone from from expressing an opinion about matters of, of law. I guess we've, we've discovered that since, since last night also, since this leak from the Supreme Court. <clears throat> lawsuits, lawsuits were initially um, very successful uh, in forcing various corporations and institutions to temper their their BDS inclinations. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know. I'm trying to think of, of a situation where a lawsuit has been filed against a university by private parties. There are, I think there are some. More often, there are investigations that are lost, launched by the Department of Education, by the Civil Rights Division. And uh, these usually involve incidents of of sustained harassment, rather than structural issues of discrimination or <clears throat> um, you know, sort of systemic problems. They're they're individual kinds of things. So. Uh, you know, I, I think that, and and more broadly, of course, um, however many states, 25 states, now have anti-BDS legislation. Legislation is being pondered at the federal level as well. It's been, the legislation has been successful in the sense of kind of laying down a, a marker. Um, and it's, but there's been pushback in various uh, state courts. Uh, in some cases, legislation has had to be rewritten. I don't think it's ever been finally struck down. And it'll, it'll eventually, these kinds of things will eventually go up through the, through the Supreme, to the Supreme Court. <clears throat> Presumably, we still have a Supreme Court at the end of all of this process, this other process. So I think that you know, the problem with lawsuits is that they're lengthy and time consuming, particularly when you're dealing with, uh, when you're op opposing multi-billion dollar corporations like uh, colleges and universities. And without significant backing, 
uh, legal backing or financing, I think these things are going to be very difficult to sustain. Now, there's an interesting case, um, which is now mostly resolved at Oberlin, where um, it is not, not parallel. A local store tried to stop a couple of shoplifters who were students, uh, <clears throat> and the the students and then the college accused the this store this family owned store of racial discrimination and a dean um, dean of students or something uh, then tried to organize students to protest and boycott this store this has resulted in a thirty million dollar judgment against Oberlin College because there is specific evidence of, of institutional um, malfeasance and, and conspiracy or whatever the specific terms were against a private, uh, a private company. Um, I think to get to that stage <laughs> with a, a Rutgers University, or Harvard University or any other kind of university would take literally take years and cost millions of dollars in legal fees. So I don't know, I don't know that that's the best strategy. Uh, if if somebody is well, well healed, then why not go for it. Um, <clears throat> universities um, have more money than you and me. And and they've got, for the most part, they've got time on their hands. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear from from actual lawyers um, who are who are with us today about their opinions. I, um, I'm, you know, I'm just an internet lawyer like every other person um, in America today. So, great, thank you. Um, we we'll hear if we hear from more legal experts in the audience. Um, so moving over to Paula Gantz's question. Uh, she's asking about what is the best individual approach to anti-Israel speeches and conferences that universities uh, attend, ignore, record, do something else. Uh, and, and you know, for individuals who wanna get involved uh, when it comes to such events on campuses. Well, I think the, the individual level of involvement always depends on the on the personality, the character, the attributes of, of the individual. If, um, if you're a, a person who, um, if you're a non-confrontational individual who doesn't like to be um, yelled at and harassed, then you probably shouldn't go and try and ask questions or make comments. If, uh, if you want to stand up, and that's a perfectly valid thing. I don't like being yelled at. I don't like I don't like yelling at people. These are these are irrational, quasi-religious kinds of um, kinds of uh, events. You, know, you go to see <clears throat> you go to see a person like Muhammad El Kurd, who's an actual anti-Semitic blood libel spouting person talking about um, how, you know, about organ harvesting. <clears throat> um, and if you go 
and you get up and ask a hostile question, you're going to get yelled at, and you're going to you're going to be mocked, and and possibly even worse. On the other hand, one should always, always, at whatever institution, um, try and record these things and and keep a make a record, keep a record, document these things, and publicize these things. There's so much that goes on under the radar, uh, and uh, just in terms of events that that we don't that we don't know about. Mohammed El Kurd, or Nora Erekat, or a handful of other famous, relatively speaking, individuals in this in this area. Um, you know, we know about them. There are a lot of other people that we don't that we don't know about. Go record, uh, or or log on to the live feed if there if there is one. Try and record it and and so on and uh document it uh make comments on it and bring it to the attention of whatever media you can um, that's a whole other that's a whole other issue and i've spoken about this before you know one of the problems is that because israel in general is is has been kind of boxed in as a right wing cause a lot of mainstream media and a lot of a lot of and certainly student media don't take an interest in these things and uh, whereas so called right wing media media like um the Washington Free Beacon, which covers lots of things that are otherwise completely ignored by the rest of the world. And <clears throat> that is, it, it, it's not right-wing so much because of its explicit editorial stance, it's right-wing because it adopts a critical approach towards certain kinds of verities and institutions of power that are otherwise fawned over by mainstream broadcast media, cable media, um, and print media in particular. So <clears throat> I'm not sure this answers the, the question of if you want to get involved, you have to, there are, there are different ways to get involved, but if you want to go toe to toe, you have to have, have, to have the right stuff. And it's a, it, it can be a tricky and even dangerous business. So. Great, thank you. Um, obviously, there's a lot of trickiness all involved in, in navigating all of this. Um, so uh, back to your comment about the ADO, uh, Charles Feynman is asking, um, what do you think is behind the ADLs finally having uh, you know, uh, it, their light bulb turned on, or what was the catalyst to all of this, uh, you, you know, that uh, really made the shift here uh, and the latest uh, actions coming out of them? Or are they just jumping on the general, uh, their acknowledgement that, that, you know, what is anti-Semitism today? Well, I don't have any, I don't have any particular line into that organization. 
Um, I mean, I, I might know some people there, but I'm not, I'm not in touch with them. So I can't, I can't really comment about their decision-making processes and how, how they, they came to this position, whether, <clears throat> whether there's a consensus within the organization from the bottom up or the top down or from, from donors or, or lay leaders or, or so on. That's very hard to say. I, my, my sense is though, that the, it, it's, it's just a position that's become unavoidable, that you can't dance around it anymore. You can't dismiss it, you can't dance around it. And that particular organization has invested a tremendous amount of time and, and money establishing a, a position against right-wing extremism, which is, which is fine. And, and there are obviously very real issues there, but it's, um, but it's been so unbalanced and it's been so, in some rhetorical senses, let's say, overwrought that it, um, it was bound to be balanced out in some way at some, at some point. And I think that, I think we're just at that point. They're not, they're not going to be able to win any allies among, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace uh, members or donors. Um, much less, you know, students for justice in Palestine types. They're just not going to be on their side, on the ADL side. And, you know, the ADL has all sorts of lines into um, the, the government at different, at different levels and providing information and, and, and consulting, <clears throat> creating databases that are that are consulted by various um, legislative and law enforcement, you know, units. So to to that extent, I think that this is a this is a very positive kind of uh, kind of development, and you know, it puts it puts the BDS movement in a kind of peculiar position that they are, and, uh, uh, which is absolutely true. They're a kind of mirror image of the um, of the ideologies and groups that have been labeled the the key villains in American society for the last six or eight years. And um, so there's an element of comeuppance, which is nice, I guess. <clears throat> And, but it also reflects, it also reflects reality. I mean, look, uh, there's the, the BDS movement and, um, you know, many, if not most, uh, anti-Semitic violence that's happened in, in this country um, has come from not from the far right wing, but it's come from groups like strange, you know, Nation of Islam variants and, and things like that. 
And, you know, continually uh, harping about neo-Nazis and white supremacists and, and so on, which, which are a problem, but which are uniformly accepted as evil, um, only, only goes so far, particularly when, you know, Nation of Islam types are shooting up grocery stores in Jersey City and so on. And when, um, and when uh, you know, speakers for Students for Justice in Palestine are, are calling Israelis um, organ-thirsty organ neo-Nazis or whatever kinds of calumnies are being thrown about. And so I think we're just at the stage of, of kind of reality, reality setting in. And uh, if, if, if I had been in that, in that position, I think I would have tried to shift the organization many years ago. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that they've come out and, and acknowledged it now. So we'll see what it does. I, I don't, I don't know. There's a larger discussion to be had about legacy, legacy Jewish organizations in this country and what they do and what they cost. Um, but it's a topic for another day. Good. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, so apropos, your, you know, your comments and a segue into you know, the ADL. So, uh, asking, you know, really something, you know, obviously you and I have written and discussed this, you know, at length, and we've also discussed it here on, on the uh, on the uh, on our webinars is really the um, the gap, the fragmentation between the Jewish left and the Jewish right, uh, and Mark is really really asking, uh, trying to drill down on you know when you know there'll be acknowledgement or reconciliation between the right and the left, and the left will you know realize that the right was whether or not it was right or correct about BDS. And, you know, is there you know is any of these movements uh, pushing people back into the center, uh, which I think is where he's trying to get at, uh, given, you know, the, the, the understanding. And I think obviously the ADL is a perfect example uh, of, uh, of these movements and the ebb and flow of these, of the shifts in the politics that are playing out here. We, is that, could that be the kind of the silver lining as far as the left and the right coming to the understanding that, you know, this is the reality and we need to uh, come to terms with that and maybe work together to bridge uh, and to, you know, work together across the aisle, so to speak? Well, maybe. I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite cynical myself, I think, you know, I, <clears throat> which is, which is not, you know, necessarily realistic either. Um, you know, I've, I've always thought of myself as a, as a centrist, and then I see all the sides around me spinning around, and you know, I, I like to think that I'm kind of the same as I, as I was for the last forty plus years or, or more. Um, a return to the center, May, maybe this is, but I think the fragmentation in the Jewish community, particularly, is is really quite severe, and it goes beyond. It goes well beyond um, organizations like uh, communal organizations like uh, like the ADL and the AJC and the JCRCs and and so on and all the alphabet soup um, that has been 
you know, federations and, uh, and so on. <clears throat> I think there are fundamental issues in the various religious denominations. And I think that that's in a sense where it, where it begins and where, and where it ends. And again, that's a very, very much larger discussion than we can have here today. And we've, we've actually talked about these kinds of things in the past with, with our friend Jack Wertheimer, <clears throat> where the, the polarization of the American Jewish community is going um, religiously. And, and I think some of these kinds of political issues follow, follow that. Or, or one could say um, the reverse, that the, the, the religion is following the politics. In a sense, which is in a sense is the same thing that certain kinds of ideologies, political and religious, are logically separable, but they are in are meshed together, working in tandem, and they're driving polarization and have for a long time within the American Jewish community, <clears throat> and the the ability of of the community as a whole to simply describe the reality that is in front of all of us has been dissipated. And it's a, in this sense, it's a very much a microcosm of, of America, where you will look at one thing and say, this is what's happening. And someone else will look at it and say, that's not what's happening at all. It's quite the, quite the opposite. <clears throat> and the media, the media, whatever that means, will tell you a third, fourth, and fifth thing. Um, so, you know, we we live in a in a world characterized by individual language acts. Um, good Ludwig Wittgenstein kind of formulation, where we can't agree what's actually happening to us, <clears throat> and just maybe, maybe, maybe this ADL acknowledgement that, uh, yeah, these are, you know, anti-Zionism is, is anti-Semitism. Maybe that's a, um, a, a useful first step on a journey back towards, if not a center, whatever the center is, but a consensus about what is actually happening and who, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And um, based on, if nothing else, a sense of, of fear and, and self-interest. And I think those senses are very, um, very well justified in, in some places, and more so in some places than, than in others. If you're a Hasidic Jew walking around uh, New York City, um, that sense of fear is very well justified. And maybe less so if you're walking across um, Harvard Yard, but um, we have to start somewhere. So again, uh, not necessarily an answer that is an answer, or right. that answers the question that was asked. So all good. Um, There's a, obviously a lot to unpack, and we we are trying to you know we don't necessarily have all the answers, but we're trying to identify 
the trends and give possible under, deeper understandings and, and potentially uh, some avenues of solutions uh, and looking at all of this. Um, so uh, unfortunately, you know, I'm just keeping an eye on the clock here, Alex, and so it looks like our time is up. And so I, uh, I want to thank you again, as always, for taking the time to uh, unpack uh, what is obviously, you know, uh, you know, a fluid uh, and obviously depressing topic that we're all tackling and trying to grapple with and understand politically, culturally, and theologically. Uh, you know, as far as as far as the last BDS monitor, uh, I want to thank obviously everybody who's joined us this afternoon uh, for taking the time to be with us. Uh, as always, if um, you have questions, concerns along the way, please feel free to email us uh, at bdsmonitor at spme.org. Um, I also want to promote, uh, apropos um, Alex's last comment about the challenges and the fragmentation uh, in the Jewish community. Uh, we will be uh, hosting our friends Aviva Columbus and Rachel Fish next week uh, to talk about uh, their latest project, which they believe uh, they have a way to bridge those gaps in the American Jewish community uh, and talk about, you know, what they're uh, doing as far as tackling Israel education uh, within the framework uh, of trying to bridge the gap between the left and the right in the American Jewish community. So uh, we look forward to that conversation. And of course, uh, we look forward to having you there as well. Um, as always, uh, I wish everybody a good afternoon or a good morning, depending on wh what coast you're on. Uh, stay safe and healthy, and we look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Have a good day.